We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, well, turn in your Bible with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be continuing in our series this morning. If you remember last week, we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll actually be staying in that chapter where we're going to look at verses 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13. We saw last Sunday here in this chapter that Paul is identifying two roles of leadership in the church. He gives two offices of leadership. The first office he describes is the office of overseer. We looked at that last week. And today we're going to see Paul turn his attention to the office of deacons. This is actually one of two passages in the New Testament that that mentions deacons in any detail. So we'll look at the other chapter in just a minute. But first, I want to start here. I want to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, since this is what our series is focused on. So go to the word with me. We'll begin in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I know we just prayed, but... Would you mind if we went before the Lord just one more time before we begin? God, as we consider the subject of deacons this morning, would you let the light of your truth shine on us today? We so badly want the life of this church to be a faithful reflection of what you desire for us. So send the spirit of your son into our hearts, by whom we call upon you as father. And God, let it be that he illuminates your will to our minds so that we might hear, understand, believe, and obey your word. Let the words of my mouth and let the meditations of every heart in this place be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you speak now for your servants who are listening? In your son's good name we pray, amen. If you rewind the clock of the early church back to before these words in 1 Timothy were written, if you rewind the clock back to before Paul was even a believer, you would eventually arrive at the events of Acts chapter 6. This is where we see the office of deacon sort of initially germinating. We we see it beginning 
to take place. Let me, let me just set the stage for this. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples who were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit's power in Jerusalem is so great. It, it's so awesome that it demands an explanation. The people in Jerusalem, they want to know what's happening here. Like, what is this? Are, are you guys drunk or what? And so with all this going on, with, with the city in an uproar, Peter stands up and he begins to preach. He preaches about how the, the Spirit is being poured out because Jesus of Nazareth, though he was once crucified, he has now been raised from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of God in power. And it's from there that he now gives his spirit to anyone who will call upon his name. And in response to Peter's sermon, that's exactly what people begin to do. Multitudes of people, thousands of people in Jerusalem begin to repent of their sins. They begin to, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. They're, they're baptized in his name. And suddenly, suddenly you have a brand new church forming. You have the, the very first New Testament church beginning to take form. And for a while, things go really well for this new church. It's flourishing. It's multiplying. The gospel is being preached. Signs and wonders are being performed by the apostles. People are loving one another and caring for each other in such a compelling way that, that more and more people are just flocking to this community that has suddenly begun to take Jerusalem by storm. And so at this point in the book of Acts, things are going so well that you're simply left to wonder, what, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly disrupt the life of this new community? Well, just listen to Acts chapter 6, and we'll see that if something can go wrong, something will go wrong. The writer of Acts named Luke, he, he says this, now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is, this is just sort of a moment in the book of Acts, where Luke goes, 
Ooh, that was a close one. That was a, that was a close call because, sure, we see in verse 7 that, that things turn out pretty well in the end for the church. But for a second there, for a second, the church has hit its first real speed bump. They have encountered their first moment of internal struggle. And it happens with just three words. A complaint arose. A complaint arose. Friends, those three words could have easily been the church's famous last words. And you might say, well, it doesn't sound all that bad. I mean, isn't this just a minor hiccup, if anything? Well, just notice something. Notice that this isn't just about widows getting the help they need. This isn't just about the daily distribution. What this is actually about is this is tension between two ethnic groups. Because look, it wasn't the Hebrew widows that were being neglected. It wasn't the Hebrew widows who were being overlooked. No, it was the Hellenist widows. They were the ones being overlooked. They were the ones being neglected. Now, just so we understand who it is we're talking about, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. They were people from different parts of the world who practiced Judaism. And apparently some of them had become part of the church. They saw, hey, these, these Christians in Jerusalem, they, they really love one another. They really care for each other. And the Hellenists, they were drawn in by that. They wanted to join this new community. It was, it was so infectious. But before long, really they ended up finding out what I think most of us realize at some point in the Christian life. They realized that the church does not always live up to what it's called to be. Sure, we are supposed to love one another as Christ has loved us. We are we're supposed to serve one another and care for one another because of the, the service and the care that we have received in Jesus. But sometimes we fail at that, don't we? Sometimes we don't measure up. It's painful to admit it, but sometimes neglect happens in the church. And the Jerusalem church was no exception, which is why a complaint arose. It was a legitimate complaint, which meant that something needed to be done. This needed to be taken care of. It needed to be resolved because really, when you boil it all down, this was a gospel issue. The very unity of the church, the, the unity that had been brought about by the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that unity was being threatened. So the apostles, they get everyone together, they, they gather the whole church community, and they say, this is urgent. This is, this is something we need to, to solve. This is an issue. This is something that needs to be fixed. So let's find seven men. Let's find seven men to meet this need. And actually what the church ends up doing with this is they, they end up giving us a preview of what would eventually be understood as the office of deacon. Now, at this point, I, I can't help but wonder what it is you're thinking about all of this. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I would be fascinated to know what is going through your head in this moment, because it's probably the case that when you hear the word deacon, 
your mind just sort of reflexively, instinctually associates it with your own church background. For many of you, your church background involves what was typically referred to as a board of deacons. The church that you grew up in or the church that you were saved in, that church had a a deacon board. One author describes churches with deacon boards as congregations where the pastor says things and the deacons run things. In other words, it's the pastor's job to think about, to talk about, to worry about spiritual things, and it's the deacon's job to worry about church business. So deacons end up doing things like managing the church budget. They oversee the ministries and committees of the church. They they watch over the church's property and assets. And in a church where this is how things are done, this is often thought of as a sort of checks and balances system where, where the deacons get to keep the pastor in line and the pastor gets to pull back the deacons from being too pragmatic. Now, some of you hear what I'm describing there and you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was my church before I came to Amaze. And if that's true, if, if what I'm saying resonates with you, it probably means that you have a specific picture of what a deacon is in your own mind. But maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe your perception of deacons is not formed by a church in your past. Maybe instead it's been informed by Emmaus and the way that we have practiced deacons in the past. Some of you might be thinking, well, we have deacons? I didn't know that. Or then there are others of you who are like, you've been around a little longer, you've You've been at Emmaus for some years, and you're like, you know, I was wondering, whatever happened to the deacons? Where did they go? Right? They they used to be doing their thing. They were here, and then they just kind of they kind of faded away. They kind of they kind of disappeared. I think it's probably safe to say that we're not all on the same page when it comes to Emmaus and its history with deacons, and that's okay. But just just let me try to to bring us up to speed. Let me try to get us all on the same page here today. In the past, it's my understanding that Emmaus has allowed or even encouraged each community group in the church to appoint its own deacon. So deacons belonged to groups, groups belonged to the church. Now I can see that there's a a real advantage for practicing deacons that way. Those who are deacons knew exactly who it is they were responsible to care for, If a need comes up in the community group, there's a very direct and simple way of meeting that need. It's it's very clear cut. But I think there's also a disadvantage to this way of practicing deacons. And I think that'll become a little clearer when we start fleshing out what the Bible has to say about this office of deacon. So with that in mind, I want to take the two passages that we've read this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Acts chapter 6. And I want to ask of these two passages three questions. I want to ask, what is a deacon? Who is a deacon? And why are deacons essential? What is a deacon? Who is a deacon? And why are deacons essential? This is the who, the what, and the why of deacons. So let's begin with what. What precisely, what exactly is a deacon? 
Well, the word deacon simply refers to a servant. It refers to a person who serves others. Now, there's another word for servant that gets used in the the New Testament. It it comes up in passages like Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul tells the church at Galatia that he is a servant of Christ. The word that Paul uses there is not the word for deacon. It's actually the word doulos, which refers to a slave or a bondservant. So, so when Paul uses that word, when he, when he uses the word doulos, he is, he's essentially saying, Jesus is my master and I am his slave. Paul is telling us that, that he is commanded and compelled to serve Jesus as Lord. But that's a different word than deacon. One scholar says that in the New Testament, the word deacon becomes a term that denotes loving action for a brother or sister or neighbor, which is derived from divine love. So it's action, loving action based on divine love, derived from divine love. So I think you can see there that there's there's a very real and important sense in which every Christian is called to do that. Right? We're, we're all called to serve others. Every Christian is called to love and to minister to those around them. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. But at the same time, there are points in the New Testament where the word deacon refers to a specific office, not, not to Christians in general. This is what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just like Paul gives specific qualifications for overseers, he also gives specific qualifications for deacons. And I think this is because there were specific people in the church who were formally appointed to serve, to minister. That's something I want you to see this morning, that that deacons are publicly recognized office holders in the church. Another place where this becomes clear is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says in his greeting to the church at Philippi, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants, that is, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So just notice there, on the one hand, Paul addresses all the saints. He addresses the whole church, but then he turns and immediately mentions the deacons, and the overseers specifically. With this, Paul seems to be indicating something. He's indicating that deacons are not just servants in the general sense that we're all called to be servants. No, they are publicly recognized holders of office in the church. The other thing I want you to see is that deacons are appointed by the congregation in cooperation with the overseers of the church. We see this in Acts chapter 6. When a complaint from the Hellenists arises, what do the apostles do? Verse 2 says that they summoned the whole church. They they got the whole congregation together and they said, here's the plan. We're going to set apart seven men. So we see here that there is cooperation. There is coordination between the leaders of the church and the church itself. Now this, I think shows the disadvantage of the way Emmaus has done deacons in the past. I'm going to tread lightly here, but but I want to say that when you relegate the appointment of deacons 
to a specific community group, you take the responsibility away from the whole church. Appointing deacons is something that the congregation, not just certain segments of the congregation, is authorized to do. It's also something that the leaders of the church are authorized to oversee because it's the apostles who gather the church and and it's the apostles who are initiating and directing the process. So, So when it comes to appointing deacons, the best thing is for the elders and the church to work together. So really in all of this, when, when we put all these things together, we're seeing what a deacon is. We're, we're seeing what the nature of this office is. A deacon is a servant. A deacon is appointed by the church to be an office holder, a, a publicly recognized office holder. Look with me next at who a deacon is. Who gets to be a deacon in the church? I think the first thing we can say with confidence is that a deacon should model faithfulness and integrity as a Christian. This was certainly the case for the the first seven men who were appointed to serve in the early church. Acts chapter 6 verse 3 says what kind of people the church was looking for. They, They were looking for seven men of good reputation, men who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. We see this this getting fleshed out even more in 1 Timothy 3, where where Paul says that that just like overseers need to meet certain qualifications, so so should deacons. They should be people of Christian substance and Christian character. In fact, verse 10 tells us that, that deacons should be tested before they are appointed to office. And in that testing, in being tested, they are to show themselves Blameless, they are to show themselves qualified for the office. Last week, we walked through the list of qualifications for overseers. And that list was, in many ways, very similar to the list we see here for the qualification of deacons. So we're not going to look quite as closely at this list. But I do want to make a broader point. I want to make the point that when a church considers a person for deaconship, That person should be a godly, mature, virtuous Christian. We're talking about a person who walks by the Holy Spirit, a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, a person who is exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit, a person who is not walking in the flesh. And a person like this, a spirit-filled Christian, will demonstrate the characteristics that Paul outlines in chapter 3 for deacons. Such a person will be dignified, right? Verse 8, they will have control of their their words, their appetites, their attitude toward money. They will manage their household well. Verse 9, they will hold to the mystery of the faith. Verse 10, if you examine their lives, you will find them to be blameless. That's, That's the character a deacon should have. Look also at verse 11. Paul says that wives likewise must also be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So I'm actually going to argue from verse 11 that this verse is showing us that deacons can be either male or female. Either male or female. Depending on your church background, it, it may be surprising for you to hear that today, but but I think that's what Paul is suggesting here. He's suggesting that both men and women 
can be qualified for deaconship. Let me, let me just make a few observations about the text that I think will support this claim. Some of this is going to get, I don't know, a little bit linguistic, a little bit technical. I apologize. But it's, it's important for the argument here. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that the Greek word used here that's translated wives, it can refer to wives. It can refer to wives, but it can also refer to women more generally, not just a married woman. And in the New Testament, the way you will often know whether this is referring to a wife specifically or to a woman in general, really it just boils down to context. We need to ask, what does the context suggest? And I think the context here in this specific case, it lends itself toward the word woman being the better word to use instead of wives. I think this is true because if Paul were referencing deacons' wives and not female deacons, he would actually refer to their husbands in this verse. But in the Greek, he actually, he doesn't do that. This is, this is sort of one of those rare instances where the ESV, the, the translation I'm reading from, it's a little bit wonky because it inserts the word there, as in their wives. But the word there doesn't actually appear in the Greek. So I think a better way for us to understand this is that it's referring to women. It's referring specifically to women who will serve in this office that Paul is describing. Because one other thing that lends itself to this is, is what does appear in the Greek, and we see it there in the English, is the word likewise. Likewise. This word suggests that Paul is relating the office of deacon to women, saying in effect, that just as male deacons need to be qualified, female deacons should in the same way be qualified. They should likewise be qualified. This is convincing to me. It may not be convincing to you, that's okay, but, but I find this argument to be compelling. And I find it even more compelling when, when you actually zoom out from 1 Timothy 3 and you realize that, that the New Testament actually gives us an example of a female deacon. The book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul tells the church at Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, that is, who is a deacon of the church. Paul, Paul refers to, to Phoebe. He, he refers to a Christian woman as a deacon. She is formally recognized for her role in the church. So for these reasons, and, and others, there are other arguments for this, but I'll, I'll limit my argument to those things. For those, the, the reasons that I've just given, there have been Christians throughout the ages who have affirmed that women can be deacons. Let me give you just one piece of historical evidence. Listen to this prayer from the third century. This is from the third century church. Here's what they prayed at the ordination of a female deacon. They prayed, O eternal God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of man and of woman, who replenished with the Holy Spirit Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, and Huldah, who did not disdain that thy only begotten son should be born of a woman, who also in the tabernacle 
and in the temple ordained women to be keepers of thy holy gates. Look now upon this thy servant, who is to be ordained to the office of a deaconess, and grant her thy Holy Spirit, that she may worthily discharge the work which is committed to her for thy glory and for the praise of Christ and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Friends, I think that prayer shows that it is honoring to God for women to serve as deacons in the church. We live in a culture that treats women in all sorts of sinful and disgusting ways. And so what if we here at Emmaus, we would be able to say that women ought to be powerful, indispensable servants of the church. Emmaus, let's pray for that. Let's pray for the women of our church. They play a vital role in our ministries and in our mission. So let's ask God to raise up women for that purpose, for his honor and for his glory. So we've looked at what a deacon is. We've looked at who can be a deacon, a person who is qualified. A deacon can also be a man or a woman. And now I want to look at our final question that we want to consider today, which is, Why are deacons essential? Why are deacons essential to the church? I think before anything else, we can say that deacons are essential because they identify and meet needs within the congregation. That's that's a deacon's role. A deacon will see needs in the church. They will identify needs that come up, and a deacon will find practical ways to meet those needs. They will find tangible ways to meet those needs. In Acts chapter 6, the seven are appointed to care for the widows of the church. This is significant because in the first century, widows were often the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable people in society. They were often cast aside. They were often overlooked. And we see that even in the early church, for all the great things that it had going on, for all the power of the spirit that was being demonstrated among the early church, they actually needed to appoint someone to specifically make sure that women, that the widows were not being overlooked. And the effect that this has, when this, when this need gets met, the effect that it has is that the unity of the church ends up being promoted and protected. That's the second reason why deacons are essential. They protect and promote the church's unity. Again, Acts chapter 6 is instructive. Seven people are appointed to meet a need in the church because remember what was at stake. It was the unity of the church. It was unity in the gospel. The Hellenist widows being overlooked was not the root of the issue. It was instead a symptom of the fact that the unity of the church was at risk. And the seven stepped in to promote and protect that unity. That's not the only thing they did. The seven also freed up the apostles to keep doing the work that they were called to do. In verse 4, the apostles tell the church, our job is to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And and really, this this is important, right? That's the third reason why deacons are essential. They serve and support the ministry of the church's overseers. That's the third reason they're essential. 
This is why Paul, immediately after he talks about the office of overseer, he turns his attention to the office of deacons. Because the work of elders and the work of deacons are inextricably related to each other. They are connected to one another. Last Sunday evening, one of the main reasons that the Chiefs were able to to pull off a Super Bowl win was because their offensive line was stellar. People have been talking about this all week. The O-line blocked one of the best defensive lines in all of professional football so effectively that Mahomes at quarterback was able to to concentrate on moving the ball down the field. That's sort of like the relationship between elders and deacons. When the deacons step in to meet practical, tangible needs, the elders get to stay focused on their work. They get to stay focused on leading the church through prayer and through the ministry of the word. And when elders and deacons are both playing their part, what it does is it keeps the whole church on mission. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that when the church's needs were met, what the, the result of that was that the word of God continued to increase. That's what Luke tells us. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So if I could boil everything down, everything I've just said, if I could boil it all down to one thought for us this morning, it would be this. The main reason why deacons are essential for the life of the church is that they serve and strengthen the church to be on mission. Deacons serve and strengthen the church to be on mission. That's what they do. They keep the church moving forward so that Christ can be made known through his people. And so the only question left to ask is, where do we go from here? We've seen what deacons are. We've seen who can be a deacon, and we've seen why deacons are essential. So how should we, here at Emmaus, apply what Scripture says about this office? I believe the main application for us as a church today is that we need to appoint deacons here at Emmaus. We need to appoint deacons at Emmaus. If what we've talked about today is true, then we need to start taking full advantage of this office for the life of our church. We've had deacons in the past, yes. But the elders firmly believe at this time, when it comes to how this office gets practiced at Emmaus, we need a fresh start, which is, which is why we've been working behind the scenes for the past several months to see deacons become a reality at Emmaus. So here are the steps we've taken to do this. I'll outline for you four steps that we have taken and are taking to appoint deacons at Emmaus. The first step is we wanted to look at who is already doing the work of a deacon. Who's already serving as a deacon functionally? Who's serving as a deacon in our church already? And asking that question, it was obvious that the best place for us to start would be to start with our ministry directors. Those who lead ministries like hospitality and kids and other essential ministries of our church, they have been on the front lines of Emmaus. They have been out there meeting needs. They have been investing in our people. So we thought, let's go to them and let's see what they think about this. That's the first thing we did. Back in 
November, on November 7th of last year, Pastor Patrick and myself, we met with the, the directors of the church and outlined for them a vision for deacons at Emmaus. And in that meeting, really what we wanted to know from them is, okay, who feels called to this office? Who, who among this group wishes to be a deacon? And so from there, after we were able to kind of gather that information, we took a second step. Our second step was to have discussions with each ministry director. We wanted to follow Paul's guidance on deacons being tested before they are appointed to serve. So we spent time getting to know each of our directors in a deeper way. We, we had discussions with them. We, we asked them about their personal lives. We asked them about their relationship with God. We asked them about their own personal holiness and their doctrinal beliefs. We wanted to test each person to make sure that anyone that we present as a deacon candidate would be living a holy life, a life that is worthy of this office. So that was the second step. The third step is actually what you're experiencing right now. This is the third step. We wanted to teach about deacons on a Sunday morning. We want the whole church to see that this is a biblical office. We want to demonstrate that this office is essential for Emmaus at this time. So what scripture clearly teaches and prescribes to us. And that leads us to the fourth and final step that the elders want Emmaus to take which is that we want to present you with a group of deacon candidates. This is something we're planning to do at our next members meeting on March 19th. Like I said, last week we'll be presenting elders at this meeting, but we want to present deacon candidates at this meeting as well. And we're going to ask you, the people of Emmaus, to affirm both elder candidates and deacon candidates. That's going to be a major focus of that meeting, which again is on March 19th. So with all that being said, and listen, I know that that is a lot of information. All right, I'm actually going to send you an email this week that outlines everything I've just announced so that you can read over it and hear it again. But all that being said, I want to end this morning by reminding us of the bigger picture. When change happens in the church, it can be easy to get focused on the details, so focused on the smaller things that are going on that you lose sight of what all of this is really about. So let me just say this, the, the ultimate reason we're doing this, the ultimate reason that we're spending time and energy and resources on appointing new elders and deacons is because Jesus is Lord of his church. We want to be submitted to his authority. We want to appoint people to ministry that he is calling and raising up. When it comes to who we are at Emmaus, when it comes to, to how we do ministry, we want to diligently obey the word of Christ. There's nothing that matters more to us than that. Because we know just how far Jesus went. We know how much of himself he gave in order to make us, the church, his treasured possession. Remember, we were, we were alienated from God. We were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our trespasses and in the sins in which we once walked. And Jesus paid the highest price imaginable to rescue us from that. 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul says this. These words are so moving to me. Paul says that we are the church of God, which Christ has purchased with his own blood. Friends, let that sink in this morning. As a church, we have to recognize this. We, we have to recognize that the only reason we exist, the only reason we get to be here together this morning is because that's what Jesus did. By going to the cross, by, by shedding his own blood, he canceled the record of death that stood against us with all its legal demands so that every sin of ours, past sins, present sins, and future sins, all of them would be nailed to the cross once and for all. Because of this, we have now been granted a glorious, glorious privilege. We get the glorious privilege of being known as the people of God. What a glorious reputation that is. What a glorious identity we have. That we would be his people, sheep of his pasture. So friends, why would we not want to do whatever it takes to obey the word of Christ? Why would we not want to make any adjustment we can in order to be faithful to him? Everything we have, we owe to him. Everything we are is because of him. Every moment that this church is allowed to exist is a moment that should be spent for his glory alone. And so today, as we come to the communion table, we come remembering this. We come to taste and to touch and to see this reality that Jesus Christ paid it all and to him we owe everything. Sin had left upon us a crimson stain, but his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we would be cleansed, so that we would be washed white as snow. For anyone who's not trusting in Jesus today, for anyone who has not been washed by his blood, we would ask you not to come to this table. We ask this for no other reason than that this is a family meal. This, this is a meal for the church. So instead of coming forward with us, would you instead consider joining us in our belief and in our conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord? You can do that by calling on his name today. You will be saved and brought into his church. You will become his treasured possession. For those who will come in just a moment, I'll ask you to begin in the front row, these, these front rows, and move to the back of the room. You can come down this side of the room. And just to help us with traffic flow, you, you'll follow a single file line over to the table here where the elements will be waiting for you. You can, you can pick up those elements and you can take them with you back to your seat where you will observe the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we'll do that. But first, would you pray with me one more time? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did the unimaginable. You did not spare anything that was required for our salvation. You ransomed us completely. You drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. 
And because of that, we have you and your father as our God, and we are forever your people. So for this reason, Lord, we want to we give you everything. We hold nothing back today. The, the life of this congregation, we fully submit to you today. And we ask, Lord, that you would use us for your glory. Be faithful to us, God. Give us favor for the sake of your name. And it's in that precious name that we ask these things today. Amen. Church, your Jesus is waiting for you here at the table. Come, feast on him. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.